0: Luke chapter 6 this week, Luke chapter 6, we are going to continue what we've been talking about the past several weeks, in fact this is the conclusion of the series, and when we began, this is, as I've mentioned several times before, most people believe that this is at least, if not the same, Sermon on the Mount, it is at least a sermon that was preached right alongside of it. In other words, maybe it wasn't preached on the Mount, maybe it was preached at a plain, as the Bible indicates, but they are the same sermons, uh, at least in topic and, and the things that they cover. And our Lord here is teaching on several things, but it strictly deals with His disciples. Uh, he teaches, in our, and what our study has been about, is the four attitudes that He teaches, and our attitudes towards those things. What are those things? Well, the first week we looked at our attitude towards circumstances. The Bible told us that things would be difficult as a disciple and follower of Jesus. The second week we looked at our attitude towards relationships. You say, I have a good attitude towards good relationships. Well, that's pretty easy. The Bible actually was teaching us how to have a good attitude towards poor relationships. Relationships that reviled us and persecuted us because we followed the Lord and how we were to love our enemy as we love ourselves, And so we've looked at uh, uh, circumstances, our attitude towards relationships, and then we looked at our attitude towards ourselves. You say, well, I kind of like myself. And therein lies the problem. A lot of us like ourselves and we think that ourselves is pretty good. But the Bible tells us that pride is a stumbling block. And so what we have to do is we have to realize no matter how talented we think we are, gifted we think we are, and you know what I've come to learn? The closer you get to God, the, real, the more you realize you need Him more and more each and every day. But what our lesson was about was realizing and admitting our need for our God. And the things that we input into our lives, our spiritual diet, if you will, our feed determined our flow. The more God we put in us, the more we act like our God. As disciples, we need a discipler, and that is our Savior. This week, we kind of finalize our lesson, and it is this. It's a very important lesson. Our attitude towards God. Our attitude towards God. As I've mentioned before, there are essentially three segments of people that our Lord is addressing here. They have the multitudes that are following Jesus because of the miracles, because of all the wonderful things that he's doing. Maybe they themselves wanted to be healed, but they were following him because of all the things that he was doing. There's a second group there that is the disciples. Now, this is a larger group of disciples, one that we're not... Uh, super familiar with the names or the people that are in it, but it is a large following of people who are trying to live for God and follow His teachings. That's the disciples. And the third group is the what we would term the disciples proper, if you will. And the Bible labels them as the apostles, the 12 men that He called out and sent. Okay, that's the three groups that are there. And, and among these three groups, you have varying levels of interest, and certainly varying levels of commitment. And the lessons that our Lord has taught so far have in many cases been extremely difficult to swallow. For instance, our Lord said, blessed are the poor. Well, that's not a popular message. In fact, last night I turned on five minutes of like a trinity broadcasting network or an angel network whatever it was my mother-in-law was wondering what i was doing i said i'm looking for a sermon for tomorrow night and and uh within five minutes of turning it on you know what i heard if you will unlock these keys then then the lord will give you the car and the lord will give you the wealth and the lord will give you but our lord didn't preach that message our lord said blessed are the poor Blessed are you when you hunger now. Boy, those were difficult lessons. And as I've mentioned, the varying degrees of interest certainly, some probably received this lesson better than others. You see, the apostles, I would assume, would have had a, a, a larger and more firm commitment in following Jesus. Those are the guys that left everything to follow him. But then the multitudes, all they did was leave town and they followed him out, just trusting that miracles were going to be performed, you could say that the thing that they wasted was gas money. That's it. That's all they've got invested in following Jesus. And so you have these varying degrees of interest and commitment, and Jesus is taught very, very difficult uh, 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 lessons, but he ends it all right here. If you thought the first three were tough, man, get a load of four. It's going to be hard. I remember when I went to North Carolina for the very first time to visit Duke University, and my my future wife happened to be there as well. Um, No, no, I went up to see Amy. I had never met her parents ever, and now I'm staying in their house for several days. It was very odd. I, uh, uh, when I got there, I was introduced to my mother-in-law and my mother-in-law is the sweetest woman in the world besides my real mother. And she's, uh, the super sweetest. And then just one A and one B is how I would rank that. Um, but, but my mother-in-law is a sweet lady. She welcomed me with open arms. She gave me hugs. She said, here's the room you'll be staying in as far away from my daughter as can be. But, uh, uh no, it was, it was a good trip. My mother-in-law was very welcoming. But when I got there, my, at the time, just girlfriend's dad, what is now my father-in-law, was very short with me. Not, not in an uh, uh, aggressive way or negative way. He just shook my hand and said, hello. And went outside and started working. I promise you, for nearly two full days, that was all he said to me. I'm staying in this man's house and he's not saying anything. We're sitting around the living room watching commercials and television and I'm making jokes. He's not laughing. He's not looking at me. me. He didn't like me. There ain't no doubt about it. It was very, very awkward. So, as the aspiring future son-in-law, I decided to put on my charm, you know, I believe not only do you date the girl, you kind of date her parents to some degree. And a little uh, schmoozing goes a long way, especially with a mother-in-law. So, man, I was landed on thick. I was, oh, this is the best food. Oh, this is the greatest house. Oh, I I love everything about North Carolina. Y'all's barbecue is so much better than Texas's. (laughs) Every finger and toe on my body was crossed when I was saying it. Don't worry. And I remember going out to eat at this restaurant called Cornette. Um, it is right in, I guess it's Roo hall, right? They don't say rural hall, they say Ruhal. Um, and that's where it is, Ruhal, that's where my wife lives. And their church is there. And before Wednesday night service, they go out to eat. And uh, I remember going, and it's like a catfish place. Um, it's like an upgraded version of Captain D's. I don't know if many of you remember uh, Billy, uh, what was it, Billy Martin's up on the highway, something like that, Billy Bob's, that's it, yeah, um, no, not that one, <laughs> but there's one up there that's very similar, they have the same type of uh, 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 hush puppies, boy, hush puppies dipped in butter, shoo, now, that's, that's some good stuff, and this restaurant has it. They walk in, in such a small area, everybody knows them, in fact, half the church eats there before Wednesday night church. They just have like a pre-church meeting before they go to church. You say hi to everybody, and everybody's looking at me wondering who I am. My father-in-law, still, to this time, not saying a word to me. Sitting at the dinner table, um, it was me, my wife, her, her mother, Miss Heath, and then uh, her dad, and Charlie was there. They were sitting around the table, and man, I'm landing on thick to my mother-in-law. I'm talking about, I'm still just joking, you know. It's hard for me to be quiet. If I'm at an execution, I'm the one talking, okay? That's just the way I am. And we're there laughing, and everybody but my father-in-law. And at one point, I promise you, I am giving you the exact quote from this man, and he's a big guy. We're laughing, everybody's having a good time, and at one point he says... I'm going to do my father in law impression. If you've never seen him, imagine Sean Connery, but bald. (laughs) You're sucking up to the wrong one, boy. (laughs) (laughs) God, as my witness, does the exact words he said. You know, that kind of shut the conversation down. I did not really say, I just got a text, so it, probably from him chewing me out, I'm not exactly sure, but, but probably that shut the conversation down. I was a little nervous, and uh, I kind of didn't want to be at that table at that moment. You know those Southwest commercials, ding, want to get away? That's exactly the way I felt. <laughs> does, does, it, does Southwest have flats going out of Cornet? I don't know, I'm not exactly sure. Well, as awkward as that was, man, I imagine this, where we're at in the Bible tonight, was every bit as awkward. The topic and the direction with uh, with which Jesus takes His sermon, it it is very divisive, if you will. If you thought the first three lessons were hard on our attitude, now He just shuts it all down and says, here, if you want to be my disciple, here's what it will take. Luke chapter 6, verse 46. And why call ye me, Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Why are you sucking up to me? You think by the salutation the greeting by which, with which you call me? You think by just using some name you've earned some level of achievement? Why are you calling me Lord and you look nothing like me? You act like nothing that I've ever taught. You're doing nothing that I've ever taught. Why call ye me Lord and do not the things which I say? Whosoever cometh to me and heareth my sayings, and doeth them, I will show you to whom he is like. He is like a man which built an house, and digged deep, and laid the foundation on a rock. And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently upon that house, and could not shake it. Boy, I like that. And could not shake it. For it was founded upon a rock. But he that heareth and doeth not is like a man that without a foundation built an house upon the earth, against which the stream did beat vehemently and immediately it fell. And the ruin of that house was great." If you will, take your Bible to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 is the expanded version of the Sermon on the Mount. While it is longer, much of the sermon is the same. And certainly, even if you don't believe it's the same exact sermon that the writers of each respective gospel are referring to, you can at least admit they are good for cross-referencing topics. I want to draw your attention to Matthew chapter 7, verse number 19. We, we talked a little bit about this last week. Every tree that bringeth not forth for good fruit is hewn down and cast into fire. Wherefore by their fruits ye shall know them. Verse 21, this is really where I want to draw your attention. What we have in verses 21 through 23 is one of the most sombersome passages in all scripture. A group of people who thought they were saved, who thought they were disciples because of the works by which they were doing. Lord, look at all that we've done. And Jesus says, I never knew you. Now, how does this apply to the passage that we find in Luke chapter 6? Keep reading, if you will, in verse 24. Verse 24. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. Sound familiar? In fact, it's the same lesson. The only difference between Matthew and Luke is, Luke gives us less indication as to who exactly he's talking to, where Matthew leaves no bones about it. There are three groups of people in the crowd. Remember? Who are they? The disciples, the large multitude of disciples, the large multitude that are seeking for miracles, and and, and you have the apostles, the twelve that have been called out. But it's not so clear as that, Jesus says. For there's one in the apostles that belongs in the multitude. And there's probably some in the multitude that eventually became disciples. Jesus cuts all the, 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 the fancies, all the language, and he says, You know, there's only two groups disciples and deceivers. Which are you? Because you are only a disciple if you do what he says. But Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? Have we not cast out many devils? Lord, Lord, why call ye me Lord and do not the things that I say? There's only two groups. And I'm not here to intimidate anybody. I'm not here to scare anybody. Which one are you? Because there's a big difference. Tonight we're going to study the three differences between a disciple and a deceiver. Number one, a disciple is established. A disciple is established. Take your Bible back to Luke chapter 6, where we will spend the rest of our evening. Luke chapter 6. A disciple is established. Verse number 47, the Bible says, Whosoever cometh to me and heareth my sayings and doeth them, I will show you to whom he is like. Verse 48, he is like a man which built an house. Now I want you to see two similarities between uh, the, the wise man and the foolish man, or in this case, the disciple and the deceiver. Both of them build in something that they trust in. You see, a deceiver may trust in his good works. That's what they were doing in Matthew. But Lord, look at all we've done. Man, your works don't mount to a hill of beans in front of God. Some people trust in the fact that they're a good person. Some people trust in the fact that their good works will outweigh their bad works. Some people trust in false gods or false idols. But somebody, I'm telling you, everybody has built a house that they trust in. But the foundation and the way in which it was prepared is the thing that determines whether or not you're established or not. Look verse 48. He digged deep and laid the foundation on a rock. What is the rock he's referring to? You could say Jesus if you want. More specifically, the words in which Jesus taught. Why call ye me Lord, and do not the things which I say? What he's talking about is the things that he says. The rock is building your life upon the principles and the precepts of God's Word. The difference between a disciple and a deceiver is a disciple is established in the Word of God. He's established in his knowledge of the Word of God. Our world today has thrust upon us topics and, and, and problems that the Word of God, I believe, in principle covers, but certainly there's uh, no way that they could have, uh, uh, the Bible would have mentioned some of the things we deal with today. You deal with things on a daily basis that God's Word only indirectly speaks of and cannot directly speak of because of the difference in time that it was written. You say, What do you mean, Brother Andrew? Alcoholism is out of hand. And you have liberal Christianity that's teaching that it's fine for a Christian to take in moderation. And and you are caught in between this firing line of a worldly view which says, party it up, enjoy life, eat, drink, and be merry. By the way, that guy was pictured as a fool in the Bible. Eat, drink, and be merry. Enjoy the goods of your labor. And then you have liberal Christians that say, okay, but we won't go as far as you with it. We're going to be a little bit higher than you. You know what? As the world gets increasingly farther away and we stay just slightly away from them, we're still getting farther away from God. And, and, and you are dealing with things that, that, frankly, it takes a lot of knowledge and study in the Bible as to what your convictions are going to be. How do you deal with, with things in our modern world like, what's the difference between homosexuality, adultery, and someone just living in another house that they're not married, or in the same house when they're not married And what's frustrating, now listen to me, Christian, I'm not trying to be a controversial preacher. What's frustrating is our church is almost on a week-to-week basis put in situations where questions are having to be asked, is this relationship okay for them to enter into the membership of this church? And when we ever mention it, it's almost like we are the bad guys. We're the ones that aren't showing grace We're just trying to abide by God's Word. And we're not out to offend anybody. What do you do when you're dealing with these difficult topics? Let me ask you this, parent. And I kind of have a uh, a, a, a first-hand experience of this. Are you scared to discipline your child in public? I'll tell you this. When you've had the police called on you for it, you might be. And you say, there's no way I can promise you someone in the church has had it happen to them. The Bible makes clear discipline of children, does it not? I mean, can we all agree that the Bible talks about sparing the rod and spoiling the child? And, and it's not in a beating type of way, emotionally or physically, understand. Understand. But discipline is only accepted properly when it is dealt with a hand of compassion. Compassion and discipline are inseparable. God chastens us as a loving Father chasteneth His children. If you discipline without your child knowing that you endlessly love them, regardless of what they do, you're disciplining wrong. But I have to admit, when my children are misbehaving in public and I go to react as a biblical father ought to, part of me has to think twice about where I'm at and who's around. And you say, well, you ought not worry about what other people think. I'm telling you, a guy that thinks like that might end up in jail. Listen to me. When you're faced with these situations that that, frankly the Bible does not conclusively and completely cover, what do you do? Let me say this. The more you are established in your knowledge of God's Word, the more courageous you can be when you act out God's Word. Look, when we stand behind this pulpit and we mention things like adultery, fornication, and homosexuality, it is not because we have a personal vendetta against those sins. It's because our God does not like those sins, and so we as preachers must preach that. We can't change what the Bible says because our world is changing. and we say the world's getting farther from God all the time, the world's always been opposite of God. They, they've always been enemies of God. So, when you're faced with these topics that your Sunday school teacher did not cover, how do you handle them? I mean, do you call a preacher up? Or is your knowledge of the Word of God such that you were established and you can confidently act out what you know God's will would be in your life? Because that's the picture of a disciple. Do the things which I say The Bible says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Notice this that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto every good work. Your knowledge of the Scripture is directly tied to your ability to do what God wants you to do. Are you established in your knowledge? Secondly, Are you established in your application of the Scripture? Let me tell you the two groups of people who knew more about the Bible than anybody else in all the Bible. Okay, you ready? Uh, We're going to leave Jesus out of this one for for obvious reasons. You want to know the two groups of people that knew more about the Bible than anybody? The devil and the Pharisees. Listen to me. Knowing Scripture does not directly mean you are abiding by Scripture or applying Scripture. How are you applying what you read daily? How are you living out what you learn from the pulpit? Every year at youth camp, us us, uh, male counselors, we kind of gather our junior high guys around. Did you know that seventh graders do not always act like they belong in the youth department. Did you know that? I know it's surprising. Sometimes there's somewhat of a developmental process and a growth process. Now, some come in and they fit right in. Boy, I praise the Lord for them. And some of them, boy, it's kind of like fitting a square peg in a round hole sometimes. It doesn't always work so easy. So we go to camp. And usually somewhere on the first day we have like an orientation meeting. Just guys only. And you say, Brother Andrew, what do you cover? Do you cover taking your Bible to church? Do you cover notes? Uh, Do you cover how to behave in the evening service? No, we cover hygiene. That's it. We'll let them figure out all the church stuff. Hygiene must be taken care of. And we actually will bring sample bottles of shampoo and, 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 uh, and, and, and body wash or soap to make sure that every teenager that comes to camp has these items. And we'll ask them, did you bring deodorant? <laughs> yes, sir. <clears throat> Why aren't you using it? And and believe it or not, we have to distinguish the difference between a cologne bath and a shower bath. Did you know that cologne does not remove odor? It only masks odor. And so we have what we call the junior high showers. It's where they take a bottle of Axe and empty it on themselves. So they smell like Uh, inferno dragon walking around camp. Birds are falling out of trees as they go. It's like the opposite of the cloud that follows the stinky kid on Charlie Brown around. It's like a smell-good cloud, but once it dissipates, everybody's vomiting at their presence. You see, having things does not necessarily mean you apply those things. Knowing your Bible is an admirable thing, but if the devil applied the Bible he knew, he'd be in a way better position than he is now. Are you applying what you know? Because your ability and your uh, stance as a disciple is directly linked to your ability to know God's Word and do God's Word. And when he says, thou shalt not, you know what that means? You should not reason out how you thou shalt. You can't dismiss certain passages of Scripture and talk about other ones and act as if you've got it all taken care of. That is exactly what the Pharisees did. How do you do it? You learn God's Word. And man, if you can get involved in the discipleship ministry and you be a part of either teaching God's Word or learning God's Word on a deeper level than you ever have, let me encourage you to do that. I'd encourage some of you in here that have plateaued in your knowledge of the Bible and you say, Brother Andrew, I just don't come to church. I just don't learn anything. I'm a teacher and yet I'm not learning anything. Then seek out means by which you can grow and you can learn. Never plateau in your knowledge of God's Word. Because your ability to be a faithful disciple of Jesus is directly linked to your ability to know God's Word and to apply God's Word. A disciple is established in the things that God says to do. Number two, a disciple is expecting. A disciple is expecting. Notice in verse 48, the Bible says, He is like a man which built a an house and dig deep and laid the foundation on a rock. Why in the world would someone go through all that trouble? If you can put a house up and live in your house, why would you worry yourself with all the preparation and all the work that comes along with digging deep into the earth and building an established foundation on the rock? Why would you go through all that unless you're expecting storms in your life? For both the wise and the foolish, both the disciple and the deceiver, both were certain to face storms. Storms come, man. I find it odd that after, I think the barns over at the farm that we bought, I think those barns had been there something like 35 plus years. The church owns it for two months. Storms come, blown over. And you say, what do you mean, Brother Andrew? Yeah, barns no moss there. The, the big barn, the beautiful barn that I took people into, they're like, man, I can't believe the church has this beautiful covered space. Well, good thing you don't have to believe it anymore. Gone. Barns just, gone, baby, gone. The wind blew them over. Look, storms are sure to come. The disciple expects difficulties. The Bible tells us in Matthew chapter number 5, verse 45, For He, that is God, maketh His Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sendeth rain on the just and the unjust. Oh man, if you're a Christian, I'm here to tell you, you've got God on your side. There's good days ahead. I'm also here to tell you, there's some bad ones ahead too. It's been said you're either coming out of a storm, headed into a storm, or currently in a storm in your life. You are sure to face storms. So are you prepared? Because a disciple prepares in expectation of a coming storm. A disciple expects difficulties. Notice this secondly. An ex, a disciple expects a deluge. I, I want you to notice, this is one of my favorite Bible words, okay? The Bible says in verse 48, laid the foundation on a rock. And when the flood arose, you can call that the storm. Maybe that's a normal storm, okay? The flood arose, notice this. The stream beat vehemently. Well, that's a word we need to revive from the King James Version of the Bible. Let's just all agree as a church to start using the word vehemently. You know, when you're driving down the road and and you say, uh, uh, somebody cuts you off. You look over to your wife and you say, if I could... I would vehemently take that person's head and run over it several times. <laughs> but I am a disciple, so therefore I will not. Man, I love using the word vehemently. You say, you use that word, ask my wife. Yes, I do. Because it's a fantastic Bible word. You know what it means to beat against. Especially in terms of repeatedly. How many of you have ever been hit upside the head with just some really bad news? Like when I come to church on Sunday morning. Man, this used to happen all the time. Brian, how's your day going? Well, we had a bus breakdown. Boy, that's bad news. But then sometimes you'd have to and, (laughs) and it got worse. And then when I took another bus out to haul the kids back in that bus, that bus broke down. So now we have two buses in the middle of Keene And Seventh-day Adventist neighborhood with badness written across the side. Oh, joy, great day alive. You ever receive some bad news only to get some worse news? Boy, there is no better biblical example of this than Job. The Bible tells us that one day he had done what he did every day. And that's very important. Because Job did not become a less of a Christian and then deserved the punishment. Amen. Job was a faithful Christian who got tested. Yeah. The Bible tells us one day uh, Job did his normal daily routine. He's a spiritual man, so he was doing spiritual things. The, the Bible tells us a servant comes and says, Job, you're, you, you're uh, uh You're, you're donkeys. Job, not only your donkeys, but your oxen, all of them. Somebody came and stole them all and killed every one of your servants. And and Job, I'm the only one that was left alive and I've escaped to tell you this terrible news. I can only imagine, Job, as many of us, well, that's not good news. And this is what the Bible says. And as he ended speaking, The Bible tells us the next thing that a servant came to tell him was, Job, the fire of God fell down from heaven and devoured all your sheep and your servants. And I, only I am left alone to, to tell thee this news. And I'll tell you this, that is a lie from the devil. When the devil makes you think that God did it. The fire of God devoured your sheep. You know what the devil was doing? He was trying to get uh, Job mad because God sent down fire from heaven. Be careful that in the midst of your trial, you don't blame God for what you're going through. Brethren, we ought to give thanks when we are put through that test. For it is only in those valleys, it is only in the furnace that the three Hebrew children got to see Jesus Christ. He says, oh, Job, the fire of God fell down from heaven. As he ended speaking, another servant came. Job, you won't believe this, but but a group of men came and stole your camel. And now they've killed every one of your servants. And I, I'm the only one that's left to tell you this horrible news. They're all three. All three of the the, uh, uh, message bringers are standing there. I'm sure they're winded. Job, I'm so sorry. Job, this is terrible. The next one comes, Job, I'm so sorry. I can't tell you. The next one comes, Job, I'm so sorry. You won't believe what's going on. The final one comes as these three men are still standing there. Job, a wind came and blew your home over the four corners of the house. And, and Job, every child of yours was in there. They're all dead. Vehement. It's like waves against a wall. Waves are relentless. They never end. You look up over the water, guess what? There's another one on its way. Vehement. Bad news. You know what this is? This is the deluge. Deluge. This is when, oh, you can maybe handle in your own strength and in your own experience and in your own knowledge a difficulty. But if you rely on those things in the deluge, I'm here to tell you, friend, you don't know where you'll end up. Oh, yeah, you might be able to handle a death in your family. Uh, Maybe it's an older relative. Maybe it's a sad day, but you can handle it. You can come to terms with it. What do you do when it's the death of your child? See, there's difficulties and then there's deluges. And the Bible says your establishment on the foundation of God's word will be directly linked to how you handle the deluge that will certainly come your way. How are you going to handle it? You know what Job did? Job chapter 23. Listen to me. Neither have I gone back from the commandment of the Lord... This is Job here. I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. You want to know how Job handled it? He was established on the principles of God's Word. He didn't look at God and say, God, how could you? You know why? Because he knew how good God was. He was grounded in God's Word. He didn't look at God and say, I can't believe I've only been good to you. God, you've done everything. No, 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 no. Why? Because Job esteemed the word of God more than his necessary food. Job said, I don't need the McGriddle. I don't need the McDouble. What I need is a whole big mac of God's word in my life. That's what Job said. And he was able to handle his deluge so well that the Bible says, and in all of this, Job never once sinned with his mouth. Handled it with immense integrity. Hey, disciple, how are you going to handle your deluge? You're one car accident away from being a paralytic the rest of your life. You're one tragedy away from raising your children by yourself. How are you going to handle it? Because your preparation... And your knowledge and application of God's word is what determines whether or not you're rooted. Listen to me. How are you going to handle it? Because a real disciple is expecting. The deceiver built his house only to live in it and enjoy its pleasure for moments with no expectation of the coming storm. What's the difference between a disciple and a deceiver? Number one, a disciple is established in God's Word. Number two, a disciple is expecting a storm to come. Number three, a disciple is enduring. A disciple is enduring. Notice this with me in verse 48. He is like a man which built a house and dig deep and laid the foundation on a rock. And when the flood arose and the stream beat vehemently upon that house... And could not shake it, for it was founded upon a rock. I love the way the Bible terms this. You know what the Bible is saying to me? The storm could have kept coming. The stream could have kept rolling. It didn't matter how long or how strong. The storm could never overtake the foundation of this wise man. He was established. And therefore, he endured. I want you to notice, God's word never fails. God's word never fails. Someone said, finding God does not mean building a house in a land of no storms, but building a house that no storm can destroy. God's word never fails. You can trust in all sorts of things. You can trust in Jenny Craig. You can trust in in, uh, uh, several, uh, multiple ways of finding joy in this world. But all of them come short because God's Word never fails. The Bible says in John chapter 6, verse 63, It is the Spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. John 17 verse uh, 17 says sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. God's word never fails. Truth is unchanging. Amen. So what do you mean brother Andrew? How does this apply to me? How this applies to you is God's word is to the hurting comfort. God's word is to the sinner correction. God's word is to the man in bondage, liberty. God's word is to the mourner, it offers hope. God's word is to the broken, it promises restoration. God's word is to the weary, it provides rest. God's word to the questioning always gives an answer. God's word to the foolish allows him to become wise. God's word to the downtrodden always lifts up. God's word to the man with no friends promises a friend that sticketh closer than any brother. To the lonely, it promises a God that will never leave them nor forsake them. God's word to the prodigal son lets them know that God's on the porch waiting for him to come home. God's word looks... To those who are looking for direction is a compass that allows them to find God's will. God's word is to the sick. It promises them of a great physician who can cure all ills. God's word is to the powerless. It reveals the very power of God which has never failed anyone. And most importantly, God's word is to the lost, a savior. How does this apply to you? God's Word never fails. Let me say it again. God's Word never fails. You can build your house on all sorts of things, but God's Word never fails. You can trust in what some preacher says, but preachers have been wrong. God's Word never fails. You can build your house upon what granddaddy taught you or what your mom and dad taught you, but mom and dad are wrong occasionally. God's Word never fails. You can go to the highest college in this land and learn what their teachers want you to learn, but they're wrong. God's Word never fails. You can go to the police officers and ask them how you ought to live your life, but sometimes they're wrong. God's Word Word never fails. You can look at the laws of this land and say, oh, how should I live my life so that I might be considered a good man? God's word never fails. You can look at charitable organizations and say, what can I do so that others might consider me something or somebody? I'm here to tell you they'll fall flat and it'll always fail, but God's word never fails. The grass withereth and the flower fadeth, but the words of my God shall never fail. Listen to me, Christian. How it applies to you is, God's Word never fails you. And it doesn't matter what stage of life you're in. Teenager, God's Word will never fail you. To the young toddler in this room who's just old enough to be out of nursery and you're in this room tonight listening to me preach, you don't know much more than what Barney sings on the TV or what Bubble Guppies tells you about. Listen to me now. Little kid in the room... God's Word will never fail you. One day when you get gray-headed like your granddaddy, I'm here to tell you, you'll look back on your life and you'll say, God's Word has never failed. To the aged in this room who only has a few short lives and you have admitted that to yourself. And you've told God, if I can just endure God, give me the strength to serve you until the day that I lay on that deathbed. Listen to me now. God's word has never failed you before and it'll never fail you to the end. Because God's word is a sure foundation. Listen to me. God's word never fails. God's word never changes. It never changes. You know why it doesn't need to change? Because it's never failed. God's Word is perfect. God claims it as such. And if God said it, who am I to question it? You say, Brother Andrew, I don't know if these are the exact 66 books of the canon of the Bible. God said He would keep His Word from this generation forever. God told me that uh, His words would never fail me. The Bible says, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but My words shall not pass away. Listen to me tonight, you can spend your life studying all sorts of things. You can become a chemist, you can become a chiropractor, you can become a contractor. You can study all sorts of things, but all of that is changing. All that changes all the time. But you become a theologian, you become a student of God's Word. It never changes and it never fails. The time invested in knowing God's Word and doing God's Word is certainly time in which God will bless God's Word never changes. A.W. Tozer put it like this, The Word of God well understood and religiously obeyed is the shortest route to spiritual perfection. And we must not select a few favorite passages to the, execution, or to the exclusion of others. Nothing, listen to me, nothing less than the whole Bible can make a whole Christian. Storms are coming. Are you established in your knowledge and application of Scripture? Are you expecting the reality that storms are coming? And one day you may be faced with something that overwhelms you, a deluge, if you will. Well, will you endure because you're fixed and established on the Word of God? Listen to me tonight, Christian. I'm closing. Your fervency for this book determines your spiritual temperature. Why call ye me Lord and do not the things that I say? How can you say you're a disciple and you not study and cling to every word that your master teaches? You want to know the reason that churches are dying? You want to know the reason that Christians are compromising? You want another reason that Christianity as a whole is in worse shape in America than in some third world countries? You want to know why? Because we have compromised what this book says. Yeah. We have changed what this book says. Jesus looks at these several groups and He says, there's only two groups here. There are disciples and there are deceivers. What you do with this book determines which group you are in. If you're faithfully studying God's Word, I'd say you're on a good path to being the disciple you ought to be. But if you could care less about what God's Word says, and you say, I know it says wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging. I know that it says that we should be filled with the Spirit and not wine. I know all those things, but I'll just enjoy my life. Well, you know what the Bible labels you as? And, and I'm, I'm not labeling you as this. And the Bible says, you're foolish. And when that storm in your life comes, you'll wash away. With a membership of nearly 2,000 people, I would look around this auditorium tonight and I'd say, we probably have a few deceivers in Joshua. Make sure you're not one of them.